Hey everyone. First off, we at The Familiar Strange want to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose lands we are producing this podcast and pay our respect to the elders of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples, past and present. I'm recording this interview from Philadelphia, which is Lenape land. All right, let's go. Hello and welcome to The Familiar Strange. I'm Alex, your Familiar Stranger for today. Welcome to the podcast, brought to you with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Australian National University's College of Asia Pacific and College of the Arts and Social Sciences, the Australian Centre for the Public Awareness of Science, and produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. Today I'm speaking to Eric Hirsch. Eric is an Assistant Professor of Environmental Studies at Franklin and Marshall College. An environmental and economic anthropologist by training, Hirsch researches questions of resource extraction, sustainable development, climate change adaption, and the environmental dimensions of displacement. His main research site is the Peruvian Andes, and he has also conducted research in the Maldives and the US Northeast. His new book, Acts of Growth, Development and the Politics of Abundance in Peru, has just been published this spring by Stanford University Press. And in today's interview, we speak a lot about Eric's book. We discuss growth and how it's constructed. Eric makes the case that until recently, it's been an understudied concept. We all kind of know what growth is when we see it, but it's poorly defined. So we take a bit of a deep dive into how the sense of a growing economy is performed and constructed, and how it actually takes a lot of work to make it feel like the economy is going well. All of this takes place in front of a backdrop filled with a rapidly expanding mining economy, and Eric argues that the economic logics of extractivism are exceeding the mine sites. Ideas of pre-existing abundance that just needs to be unlocked or unleashed are being found well outside the perimeter fences of the mines. Along the way, we also talk about canal cleaning and cattle insemination, so get ready for some wide-ranging discussion. Before we dive into today's interview, did you know that we have a Facebook chats group? Join us on The Familiar Strange Chats on Facebook and provide some valuable insight into today's interview. So, here it is, my interview with Eric Hirsch. Let's go. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Alex, for having me, um, especially because I am a fan of this podcast. That is so good to hear. So, Eric, the Peruvian Andes, a lovely part of the world, but also a really diverse region. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about where you were working specifically? So I was working for the most part in the Colca Valley, which is home to a pretty close and densely integrated network of rural villages. It's about three to four hours, depending how far you're going, outside of the city of Arequipa, which is essentially Peru's second city. Um, I also did some of my research time in that city because it's sort of the hub of some of the NGO and state-based development organizations that I was looking at. But most of the on-the-ground research for me takes place in the Colca Valley, specifically the village of Yanque, which is a place where I've been visiting, I guess it was an 11-year stretch of visits, and I haven't quite been back since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. 
seeing as a lot of your work takes place in and around the village of Yanke, would you like to describe it a little more? Sure. Yanke is a rural community of about 2,000 people, depending on how you count it. A lot of the people there work in agriculture in some way. There are many people who own a couple of terrains. Now, to be clear, when you yeah. say they own a couple of terrains, yeah. that's kind of like a couple of plots of land. Yeah, that's right. Mostly agriculturally engaged rural village. Lots of people there also go back and forth between village and cities. In some of my other writing, I've talked a bit about how a lot of people in the region have sort of multiple home sites and stay with different members of their kin and broader networks, depending on their different labor engagements. So this is a place that is very much connected with the broader regional rural and urban networks of exchange and of, you know, movement of people and things and ideas. It is also, I would say, at the outskirts near the expanding margins of extractivism in Peru. Every time I went from 2008, which was my first visit, to 2019, which was my latest, it seemed that mines in the area were getting ever closer to this community. And throughout, I would know people who worked manual labor jobs occasionally on and off, and a couple more people who worked uh, higher level technical jobs in different mines in the region. Now, I know the mines themselves were not your primary mm-hmm. field site, but can you tell us a little bit about them? Are we talking like BHP, Rio Tinto, big open cut behemoths? Are we talking locals panning for a little bit of gold and chipping away at a river bend? What what sort of mining are we talking about? So we are talking about a couple of those big giant open cut behemoth situations, like you mentioned. One of them was the Tintaya mine up in Espinar, which was a bit far out from the center of the region where I was mostly staying. There are a few other sites that are uh, behemoth wannabes, I would say, that are closer in, where there's some exploration going on, initial negotiations. And one of the things I ended up writing about is the idea of mining as this upcoming new industry for the region. So one of the places I looked at that really informed some of my conceptual framework on thinking about wealth and growth in the book was that I noticed in the capital town, the provincial capital of Chivai, in, in the summer, in July of 2019, the winter there, I guess, summer for me uh, and my research <laughs> assistants, there was this 10-day exhibition about the benefits of mining. And it was this really beautiful, well-composed curation of just the different ways that mining contributes to local economies. And it also looked really beautiful. It was aesthetically pleasing. There were lots of clean lines. There were marble floors in this brand new building. And it just really did a nice job of putting front and center all of the best pro-mining arguments and I that, that could have done really a lot to convince people that, okay, yeah, this may indeed be the next best thing for this place. And so then your book really focuses on the concept of growth and unpacking that as a concept. Mm -hmm. What drew you to growth? Was there a moment where you were like, oh, wait, this thing that we've always taken for granted, we really need to unpack that. Or was it just a sort of slowly dawning realization? Where I landed on growth was at about the very last minute of actually (laughs) sitting down to do this writing. Um, I sort of uh, sounds like my thesis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it was, it was kind of part of a, a similar process of writing and rewriting and rethinking and sort of talking to different people. This maybe gets more into the writing process, but I, I promise I'll get into growth in a second. 
I imagine it in parallel to the much harder job of being a novelist and working and showing your drafts to many different people over many different drafts until you finally find that main character or that main voice or that main story you've been trying to tell all along. That was kind of how it was with growth. I was sort of trying to say something about development. I was trying to think a little bit about what indigeneity meant to different people in this place where indigenous mobilization was a little bit different than you saw in other Andean countries. I wanted to think more about mining and the expanding extractive industry. And it just took me so many drafts and lots of different conversations until I finally realized that what I was trying to look at was growth. You know, it was this concept that I felt like once I sort of learned that this word was at the center of everything else I was looking at, and really at every action that I ended up writing about in the book is some sort of act in which somebody is trying to make growth happen. Once I got there, I realized that I'd been reading lots of different work on growth and sort of economic change, exchange, expanding resource use and resource logic, had some engagement with the degrowth scholarship community. And I realized that in so much of that writing, growth is sort of this thing that we know it when we see it. Everyone knows what you're talking about. And I didn't quite see enough effort, at least that in the work that I could access, enough effort to define what we actually mean. So for degrowth people who I think are great and do really important work out there, I thought that the idea of actual growth needed more local contextualization as part of the theorization. And I think on, on other sides of the debate, folks who are more kind of resource extraction boosters and logics sort of fall into a parallel trap where growth is this good thing for them. And we always want more of it generally. But what does it actually mean to be part of a growing economy? Does growth just mean looking over at your bank statement and seeing more money in it? Does it mean feeling a certain way? Does it mean changes to the visual landscape that you see outside your window? If this is in large part about making growth, the concept of growth contextually grounded, what did growth mean to some of the people you were speaking to in Peru? So to some of the people more in the policymaking and a couple of folks in the NGO world, Growth referred to the idea that Peru was seeing just this massive increase in GDP every single year. So that growth rate was one of the kind of top-down versions of growth. More on the ground with the actual development projects, I sort of saw growth manifest as this ethnographic thing in three different ways. So I was looking at three projects as part of the book, not the whole thing, but three projects were featured in the book where one was the state program that featured sort of ongoing investment and sponsorship of community organizations of entrepreneurs, mostly in agriculture and other opportunities that seem to spawn from agriculture, like gastronomy and tourism. And for that project, that was the Sierra Sur project or Southern uh, Sierra, growth was this celebration of regional wealth, right? This recognition and reveling in the fact that the Andes was teeming with resources, 
for an NGO project I looked at, the NGO was called Desco. Um, it was based in the, you know, sort of throughout the Colca Valley. Growth was really about the relationship between entrepreneurial opportunity and individual maturity. So as one person in that NGO said repeatedly, economic growth or economic development is really about personal development. And so that link between maturity as this sort of citizenly adulthood, growth as this sort of life course intervention was what I saw it manifesting as, as that second example. And a third example was looking at the corporate social responsibility activities on the outside of a mine, again, that Tintaya mine up in Espinar, where growth was both the success and expansion of the mine and the mine, the mining company's profits, but also the parallel success and expansion of markets for local agricultural families, manifested as the mine's responsibility. If the mine was responsible, demonstrating that it cares for the animals and the people and the landscapes in its surrounding region, then that is a manifestation of effective growth. So I talk about in the chapter on the mining and corporate social responsibility staff, it opens with this really violent scene of a cow getting an artificial insemination with a European brown Swiss bull sperm. And that was, I I sort of saw that as one of these micro acts of growth where seeding this hybrid species of cattle in the region is a means of demonstrating and embodying responsible growth in the surrounding area by a mine. And you use the term extractive care to kind of describe that mm-hmm. particular scene. And you use the scene to sort of talk about how there's an entwining of care and kind of violence. Would you like to expand on that a little? It's actually those sets of scenes where I was with a veterinary technician who was working as part of the mine, making rounds in the surrounding region, where the idea of extractive care really seemed to be a great descriptor for what the mine was doing, but also for what was going on more broadly in development work. You know, seeing a veterinarian so tenderly and gently take care of a cow that was a little bit sick sort of the gentle touch, the use of the stethoscope, the application of antibiotics. You know, there was a real human, non-human connection there. And then seeing that sort of zooming out and seeing what that was ultimately for, the expansion of extractive industry, the trying to get something out of that same cow, it felt very full of tension and contradiction in a way that seemed like it really spoke to some of the other ways that people and non-human animals and the landscapes were being transformed into resources, right? It's this very delicate curation in a lot of cases, but ultimately for the endpoint of extracting something, of taking something out of its immediate context, getting it away from its ecosystem and transforming it into a resource or a commodity. Yeah, and something I think you do really well in the book, <laughs> sort of almost working backwards through the book here, but yeah. something I think you do really well in the book is, because I think for a lot of people that I suspect, at least in the Western world, for a lot of people, that's just kind of what resource management looks like. You look after something so you can get something out of it. But earlier on, you offer different ideas of 
growth. You particularly contrast this with traditional kind of some indigenous practices around this. Would you like to elaborate on the the sort of contrast you set up to that extractive care? So I think of extractive care as basically what you get when you think about resource logic, the idea of using something for its benefits and then discarding it, but situating that logic in a broader context, right? So the resource management people are exactly right when they say, oh yeah, that's just what you do. You, you care for something in order to get a benefit from it or a, an environmental service from it. I've got an earlier chapter in the book, I think it's chapter two, about um, how people contest the idea of the resource, where I suggest that you know we're not necessarily talking about a community of people that are in perfect resistance against all resource ideas or all resource logics, but that that is not the full extent of what explains engagements with the people and the other things and the landscapes and the non-human world around them. So I was struck by how community labor parties and certain relationships that wouldn't quite register as economic growth on a GDP ledger, but certainly were forms of guaranteeing well-being for people were part of people's daily economic lives. Because one of your descriptions of the work parties is quite excellent about the cleaning of the canal. Do you want to talk us through a little bit more that sort of what the work parties do and how you see that as being, again, not exactly resistance to capitalism, but not exactly subsumed by it either? So the work party that I focus on a bit in that chapter on contesting the resource has basically every person in Yanke in the community that owns at least a little bit of land and thus benefits from the community's water supply, they are obligated once a year to go up to near the summit of the mountain that supplies the community's water. It's Mount Mismi, and the community is about half of the official municipal jurisdiction of Yanke, starting at a, a field in the high elevation mountains near the summit where the mountain snowpack at the summit trickles into a bunch of different streams. They go from the top of those summit streams, all the way wrapping all the way back down to the agricultural fields that villagers use, um, and clear the canals of sediment. And parts of these canals that supply the agricultural water are just literal creeks in the mud that it takes kind of an annual digging out to make sure they flow well. Other parts are cement-reinforced, bigger canals, sometimes been built in the past with municipal funds. But the cleanup is the responsibility of everybody who benefits from the communal water supply. And so this is one of those communities where land is privately owned, but water is collectively owned, and each person who uses it has to pay with an occasional tax and also their labor. So that happens once a year. August 1st is a really important day where the earth is said to open up and is just for this for the community of the lower half of Yanke called Yanke Urinsaya. That's basically the day that everybody is obligated to head up to the summit of Mismi and start this cleaning. And it's basically this most important holiday in the community that people look forward to kin, you know, people's kids and grandkids come back from the cities to help out and to join in. Uh, and it's really just this time that many people in the community come together. Most of the laborers tend to be men. And 
it's very hard work, but it often just does not last super long. And it's often just uh, hard work is matched with some very lovely rests. And, you know, it's just a chance to stop the routine a little bit. To connect it to your initial question, this is a way that communal labor is used to fill in some of the gaps that a capitalist economy does not provide. And I suggest in that chapter as well that you could see this as a subsidy for capitalism, but you can also see it as this suggestion that capitalism isn't the full story and that it, that capitalist markets purely aren't necessarily what ends up benefiting everybody and that people in this place have a different way of compensating for that. So I'd like to step it back a bit and sort of get back to some of the fundamentals. Mm -hmm. In particular, a lot of your work, you say, is premised around the idea of not starting with poverty, but starting with wealth. Mm -hmm. So you've been talking about, you know, there's this mineral wealth. There are these longstanding trading communities. There's a lot of agriculture. But what do you mean when you say starting with wealth rather than starting with poverty? For a start, what, what sort of discourse are you speaking against before we sort of get to what you're speaking for. Proposing to start with wealth instead of poverty sort of has a double motive. First, it's trying to write against this basic impulse that you see in lots of development studies, especially before some of the last couple of decades of critiques came out, where any place that's rural and not in Euro-America pretty much is talked about as a site of poverty and sort of that's just kind of presumed as the baseline that you're trying to overcome with efforts in development. So I wanted to write at first against that assumption. A second interest though on this is to try to see what it would mean to take seriously this idea that the Andes is a space of abundance and sort of start from the premise that some of the local development projects are also trying to start from. What does it mean to think about wealth as orienting a set of concepts and problems? It seems, to a certain extent, Peru seems to be on top of this as well. You describe a marketing campaign that, look, I've seen a little bit of in Australia, but I suspect Australian listeners won't have seen so Mm -hmm. much. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think it plays with this idea really well. Right. So for uh, over a decade now, Peru's been marketing itself to the world in this really brilliant way and this really kind of well-funded way as a site of wealth and abundance. There's this really famous viral ad for the Peru brand or Marca Peru, where a coach bus carrying some of Peru's top celebrities, celebrity chefs, athletes, musicians, pulls into the rural backwater community of Peru, Nebraska in the United States and shows Nebraska what it means to be Peruvian. And what it means to be Peruvian is to eat really well and to feel just like the fullness of a wealthy life. That was the message of the ad. And of course, they were there are lots of tropes in that video that end up flipping the script on what Western world leading development ends up trying to do for so-called poor communities outside of the Western world. So that that 
campaign has taken on several different variations with several different slogans or mottos for it. So one of the more recent slogans was Peru as the richest country in the world, right? A slogan before that was Peru, the empire of hidden treasures. And so all of these branding tactics, and you see different kinds of national brands popping up, brands sort of appealing to tourists, foreign investors, um, potential foodies in the case of Peru, which is really leaning into itself as this space of kind of leading high-end gastronomy. Peru's got a couple of its restaurants in the top 50 world best restaurants right now. And so just kind of taking that as the starting point was really exciting to me. And of course, Whilst that campaign is, of course, at the national level, well, international level, really, Mm -hmm. you started to see a similar contesting of the idea of wealth um, or restructuring of the idea of wealth in the Colca Valley, in and around the various development sites where you were researching, yeah? Exactly. Not directly, but it still seemed that, you know, these programs I was looking at Many staff, you know, not everybody, there's a diversity of voices in the book. Some of them do mention poverty occasionally. But for the most part, in these projects I was looking at, it did seem like poverty was not the central issue that people were trying to address. As one development consultant said to me, I don't work with poor people, I work with entrepreneurs, right? So at at best, it was people who are not quite in charge of a productive enterprise yet. That was the closest thing to poor a lot of development consultants were, were willing to admit, right? Yeah, and so this starts to get into what you've said, where growth under neoliberalism, you talk about it rather than being uh, perhaps older. I'm not quite sure if old is the right term. Mm. Ideas that, you know, wealth is con- growth and wealth is constructed and labored for. It, it's definitely worked for, mm-hmm. but you note that there's a lot more talk about growth being free and flowing, and we've got to unlock the potential of stuff that's already there. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a bit more about that and? Why is that important? Why should we care? One of the initial inspirations as I finally landed on this idea of growth as something that would be the centerpiece of the study is just how freely it was talked about as, oh, well, you know, if you invest in yourself as an entrepreneur, find your niche and market right, the growth will come. All you've got to do is take care of these basic initial steps and we're good, right? The idea of unlocking or unleashing, the idea of flow, right? These are aquatic metaphors that suggest that, you know, once you do that unlocking, get that fence off of the canal, the water is just going to flow down and really the economy will work by itself. Well, uh, daily life suggests that Actually, after you do all the things that you would do to unlock growth, the next day you are still actually kind of trying to put a lot of work into making that growth continue to feel real. So I ended up thinking about growth as it's enacted and reenacted as this constant composition that took ongoing labor to maintain. As this constant composition, I thought of growth manifesting in three related forms. On one hand, it was a representation. There was lots of semiotic work going on to represent certain sites and scenes and programs as where growth was happening. So I've got one example of this that actually maybe might clarify this a bit. One of the sites I looked at was this spectacular development contest staged at the end of 
the state program I was looking at, three-year investment, where one of the presenters from a community discussing her entrepreneurial association of wool producers talked about how her association put into the economy this value added. And in her discussion of her business, she kept on coming back to this term, value added, value added. And I think the harping on that specialized kind of semi-technical term in that moment where this person was making a case for why her community ought to win the contest of entrepreneurial associations, that's a really great example of using semiotic indications of growth happening here. Two other components of growth that I just wanted to quickly mention. A second one is that it's, in addition to being a representation, it's also kind of a feeling, sometimes written about as the opposite of representation, right? This affect of growth. We feel it, sort of this feeling of progress, of maturity, of well-being. So I, I in parts of the book, I ended up writing about growth under neoliberal capitalism as this structure of feeling. Finally, a third thing was that um, there is still material reality to growth. Certain things are in particular arrangements to, in order for growth to be recognizable as happening, and it takes work to maintain those physical arrangements. You've used the word feeling quite a few times there. And I think that's really important because earlier when you've said, you said something along the lines of it takes labor to make growth. You're not just saying economic activity, like it's a lot of work shearing a sheep or growing potatoes. You talk about uh, another description you've offered that I'd love to hear a bit more about is a festival where everyone has to, and I have seen these, they're really popular People like people had to perform folk songs, kind of put on a feast and sort of compete over who has the best local dish, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm-hmm. And you link that to performing growth and as a quite a labor intensive way of mm-hmm. creating that feeling of growth. Can you describe the festival a bit more and then how you see it all related to growth? So the festival, you know, the festival is another way of describing the contest where these different entrepreneurial associations were putting on a great show and providing, yes, presentations about what their business progress and how their community was doing, but also putting on a literal song and dance and hosting a tent filled with their community's best dishes. So there was this gastronomy contest, dance contest, and also kind of um, venture capital style presentation on entrepreneurial progress. And what all of these material arrangements do together is create this, basically this atmosphere where uh, of abundance, right? Where everywhere you look, there is some kind of profusion of something related to these local communities. So I, you know, I, I don't know if you've experienced this Um, in some of your own research, but these are really bustling, loud, and and the senses are attuned to, to give you this kind of full five sense feeling of growth happening in this place. So yeah, I open with somebody, with a woman named Senora Elena, I open the book with talking slash singing about um, how her community of Taya is this space of deeply elaborated um, custom and also really delicious food and also a really exciting dance and also um, uh, 
competently learned and built market in guinea pig production, right? So having to do all of those things at the same time, representing this community in all of these different layered ways would make anybody exhausted uh, and is itself this kind of form of uncompensated emotional labor, having to put in that kind of effort as the result of three years of a relatively minuscule community investment from a state agency. So something we've been talking about and around but haven't really addressed directly is the mining itself. Because a large part of this book is not mining the specific extraction, because of course that wasn't your field site, but instead all this flow on of consequences and how mining almost kind of marks a paradigm for you, doesn't it? Yeah. So one of the things I'm trying to think about is the ways materially and affectively and representationally mining or extractivism is part of and also exceeds mining within rural Peru. Yeah, I I think we're going to need to unpack that is a part of and exceeds. Mm -hmm. So can you give us some examples of how, first of all, what do you mean by it exceeds? Mm -hmm. Because I think that's a bit of an unusual usage for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And secondly, can you offer us some examples of these resource logics exceeding the mine site? So this, this is sort of my move to connect the mining, which drives lots of Peru's economy, as I observed it, and the small-scale entrepreneurship programs that involved this really much more localized one-on-one interaction between development experts and development agents and members of the community, whether it was these bigger entrepreneurial associations or these young people entrepreneurs. So by exceeding the mine, it's the idea that beyond the space of actually mining that where the this the core of the extractive economy is some of the practices of extraction appear to also be organizing production so an example would be liliana who is the psychologist i worked alongside in the desco ngo program with one program participant we went on a site visit it was in her kitchen where uh, sort of Liliana was sitting down with her for tea and I was there too as sort of the the quiet hanger on and um, basically Liliana was talking about the household as this site of nearly endless resources for this person's in-progress restaurant business right so Liliana suggested that even this woman's three-year-old child could be seen as part of the business enterprise even when you ask the child to clean up his toys after himself, that's kind of being part of the team, right? Because him cleaning up his toys cultivates this practice of keeping the space clear for customers. It's sort of this like extractive mindset almost where any you can kind of look around at daily objects, right? And anything could become potentially this instrument of resource exploitation. But in that example, a couple of, I think, really interesting things are happening there. Mm -hmm. First of all, can I point out that it's a psychologist? You said it was a psychologist, right? Yes, it was a psychologist. That's kind of wild as a development project. Mm Know that they're like, yeah, what these people need is a psychologist to talk to them about their entrepreneurial endeavor. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yes. Like, what, what's the logic and what does that say about their ideas of growth and development? 
So that to me was an indication that economic growth was a dimension of personal growth. So you know how, at least among people I talk to just here in the U.S., we have this idea of adulting and this very classed way of talking about being an adult as you know having a certain material level and being able to do certain things. Well, it seemed like there was part of kind of the the entrepreneurial development involved a dimension of that where you have maturity as this step toward citizenship, where being a full adult citizen in some of these rural communities meant being able to start a business, being able to take care of yourself in the market. And the NGO suggested that psychology was an important form of expertise. So, you know, we saw psychology as this like almost objective approach to who the people were in this project, who they were, who was participating, how they could negotiate their interior monologue and their own inner issues as a way of clearing the path for an entrepreneurial maturity. And of course, it still links back into what we keep saying, that idea of starting from wealth is that all this implies that the wealth is already there, you're unlocking it, it's about free flowing, which I thought was the other interesting link between this and extractivism. Honestly, one of the biggest myths of extractivism, particularly as it relates to mining, is that we talk about these places as if they're almost infinite sources of wealth mm-hmm. where of course a mine l- literally cannot be infinite no matter how much of a mineral you have in the ground it's gonna run out one day mm-hmm. and this contrasts back to something we were talking about earlier about communal ideas without wanting to es- essentialize in because i know it's really there's a real thing in the andes for essentializing indigenous knowledges but you do point out that this contrasts with earlier ideas of tending to the land and how people interacted with the land previously. Mm-hmm. Do you want to talk about that contrast a little? Right. So the annual canal cleaning, for example, it's not really oriented toward expanding the water supply or figuring out ways to get more out of the fields every year. It's about restoration um, and making sure there's a baseline amount of things that are able to grow and a baseline amount of water that's able to be there and be guaranteed every year. Um, and so, I, you know, Gerardo is also an entrepreneur sometimes and has worked in other types of jobs. And so I wouldn't say that it's completely this essentialized approach to only cyclical relations to local abundance, but I would say that that is part of his and others' economic repertoire. So then I guess the next question, just published a book, what's next? Where do you see your research heading in the future? So first, I am very eager to get back to Peru. It's been too long now, um, and it's not usually part of my professional practice and my um, keeping up with the relationships I have in Peru to be gone for so long, but the pandemic has gotten in the way of that for now. I think I'm really interested in some of this entrepreneurial individualizing impulse as I've started to see it move into responses to climate change and the way climate change adaptation is being talked about in Peru and in other parts of the world. My suspicion is that there's this vision amongst adaptation policymakers that's making its way around the world of an adaptive citizen as somehow 
this person completely free from obligation from the state that is just able to be resilient and take care of themselves in this kind of rugged, independent way. So I, some of my work now in very preliminary drafts and, and exploratory writing is starting to explore how adaptation is both embodying and departing from some of these recent approaches to development. Is development informing some of our initial adaptive policies as climate change is now widely accepted as something that's here and intensifying? What are we doing about it? And is development playing a role? So that's sort of a research question I have going into the next phase. I also recognize that it's necessary to stop and read a little bit and not necessarily need to um, go right into the next thing before I'm ready. I think the amount of years it took to make me realize that growth was actually the focus of this big study should be a lesson that I should take seriously as, <laughs> um, you know, sort of give the time for new approaches to solidify uh, and especially the time in the field, which I, I'm really excited to be able to get back to, hopefully, in the coming year or so. Yeah, look, I am dead set jealous. I'm really keen to get back. Yeah. But that sounds like really excellent and interesting work, and I look forward to reading it. Otherwise, thank you so much for appearing on the show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Um, again, huge fan of the show, showing it to my students we like oh, it a lot brilliant yeah awesome well thank you very much and that was it eric hirsch and myself Today's episode was produced by me, Alex, with help from the other familiar strangers, Simon Theobald, Claire Bajal, Timothy Johnson, Carolyn West, Sean Liu, Matthew Fung, Joe Clifford, Jared Sim, and Ruanan Chen. Subscribe to the Familiar Strange podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, and all the other familiar places. And don't forget to leave us a rating or review with your likes and dislikes. It helps people find the show and helps us make the show better. And if you'd like to support us, please check out our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash The Familiar Strange. Not The Strange Familiars, which is another fun podcast, just not ours. You can also find the show notes, including a list of all the books and papers mentioned today, plus our blog about anthropology's role in the world at thefamiliarstrange.com. The most recent is one of mine. It's all about small business, and why do we seem to like small business so gosh darn much? If you want to contribute to the blog, though, or have anything to say to myself or the other hosts of this program, email us at submissions at thefamiliarstrange.com. Tweet at TFS Tweets or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Music by Pete Dabro. Special thanks to Nick Farrelly, Will Grant, Martin Pierce, and Maud Rowe. Thanks for listening. See you in two weeks. Until next time, keep talking strange.